mystery tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 60th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And today, we're finally home from our Boston trip, but we're still going to be staying in the Boston area when it comes to our podcast. Today, we're doing Danvers State Hospital, which is in Danvers, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, we had big plans to go visit the site, but our schedule was so packed that we were not able to do that. Right, Denise? Uh, Right. We are exhausted from our trip up to Boston. Uh, We did a little bit of everything while we were there, and we do apologize. We were planning on doing a lot of periscoping. We always have big plans to do all this technological stuff while we're on the road, and then either we go to places that don't have water. Wi-Fi access, or in the case of Periscope, after a lot of trying very hard to do it over and over, using Wi-Fi, not using Wi-Fi, doing it here at home, doing it in the hotels, I finally decided I'm going to go on the internet and see what the heck is going on because I know I'm technically challenged, but this Periscope thing, everybody seems to be using it so easily. Come to find out that using the app on an Android Well, if any of you are having any luck with that, let me know, because apparently the Android app is an afterthought. This was made for iPhones, and so they haven't really bothered with the Periscope app for Android, and so far I haven't found anyone who's been able to really use it when it comes to Android. I can watch other people's stuff, but we can't do it ourselves. See what happens when iHumans start taking over the world? (laughs) That's right. We blame it on you iHumans. So we're going to look at Meerkat, which is supposed to be a similar app, see if that one works better. I'm very disappointed. We had all these big plans to do all this live recording and everything, but we did get the video that we took while we were on the Plymouth ghost tour where we actually had something happen, which has never happened to us on a ghost tour that we really had something documented. So I got that up on YouTube finally. So if you aren't on Facebook and haven't been able to find it, you can see it on our YouTube channel. The best way to do that is to go to our website, historyghostbump.com, and up in the top right-hand corner, there's a bunch of icons up there where you can find us on social media. There is an icon for our YouTube channel. Just click on that, and you should be able to find the video there. I says something about Plymouth Ghost Tour. Did we find a ghost? Something like that. You'll be able to figure it out. Also at that site, you can find all of our archived episodes. You can listen to the last 10 shows that we've done. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can shop in our Emporium. We had a lot of people on our ghost tours that really loved our shirts. So we said, hey, you can get them at the Emporium. And if you do buy anything there, it does help the show out a little bit. So you get cool gear and we get a little bit of a kickback. And if you are so inclined, you can make a donation to the show as well. And we don't just say that for our health. We do need your donations to keep the show going. If you can help out the show, we would greatly appreciate it right now. It's not even paying for itself. But we do have what we're going to start calling three executive producers to the show. These are people who are donating to the show every month, and that would be Levi, Rachel, and Dan. Thank you so much for being executive producers of the show, and we figure anybody who gives us a one-time donation, we're going to start calling you producers because you guys are really the ones who are helping to keep the show going. And in October, we're going to be having our one-year anniversary, and my goal for that is for us to be able to expand starting in that month so we can start bringing you more shows, more activities, more all kinds of great stuff. But 
course, we need to have everything growing in order to get there. And we do want to keep the show listener supported. And so I'm very committed to that. I did find another show out there called No Agenda. It's a really good show if you like politics. And um, it's irreverent, which is what I love when it comes to politics. And they're doing it completely listener supported. So I know we can do it too. I don't want to bring in any other people telling us what we can or can't do on our show or that kind of thing. So no, before we do that, we would drop the number of shows that we do. Exactly. So again, any little bit that you can give, we greatly appreciate that. We also appreciate your reviews of the show. And we did get another five-star review over at iTunes, Denise. That is awesome. We love hearing from our listeners. This is Dark Rose 1987. Hello from Pittsburgh, Diane and Denise. I downloaded your podcast expecting to hear the same old thing, but I found something that I can listen to whether I'm doing chores, got to keep myself busy, or just relaxing after a long day at school. This is truly an awesome podcast to listen to after a long day. You mix the right combination of history, scares, and humor along the way. Would love if you ladies did a location in Pittsburgh or Gettysburg. Dan, did you hear that? Pittsburgh? (laughs) We have been working on something there, Dark Rose, but uh, I'll find a location there for sure. Absolutely. I hope I spelled Denise's name right. You did. I hope you will continue to make awesome episodes. P.S. The 1987 part of my username is a reference to Five Nights at Freddy's. Well, Denise, you and I are um, a little older. So I'm a lot older, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> we're a little out of the loop when it comes to uh, some things that are out there. So I'm like, what's Five Nights at Freddy's? I'm not sure. So I looked it up and apparently it's a video game about being trapped basically in a place like I would say Chuck, Chuck E. Cheese. And you're a security guard, and so you're having to keep track of all the animatronics, and at night they come to life and, I guess, try to kill you or something. It it looked terrifying to me. If audio animatronics actually came to life, imagine when we were kids, Denise, going through the Pirates of the Caribbean, and if those things actually came to life and started going after us. Uh, I wouldn't like that very much (laughs) at all. So No, thank you. Yeah, my, My level of video games is like that on an Elsa one that I have where you just like, match the jewels up and they explode it's sort of like bejeweled only better yeah Yeah, tetris you know i'm I'm good sometimes i mean diane gets into the epic mickey one yeah there's some newer ones that i have been doing and uh we have the infinity stuff for disney of course but i we never have any free time to play i haven't played it in so long i can't figure out the controls pong was easy all of this where you have to hit A, B, and then C, D, and then hit the stick i'm like i don't know so i usually give up pretty quickly and we just lost all of our millennial listeners. <laughs> Pong? What the hell's Pong? <laughs> Pong Breakout. Breakout was really fun because it did more than just Oh, Pong. my God. I loved that game. Oh, okay. and if you got the little ball at the very top and it just it started pinging like crazy. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Air hockey foosball. That was my generation. We didn't do as much on the TV. Just saying. Oh, there we went retro for y'all. Talk about history. Uh, we also <laughs> want to give a special shout out to, we did, how many ghost tours did we do on our trip, Denise? Four. Four of them. And we met a ton of great people while we were doing them. And so I think we have a few new listeners out there based on those meetings. And so we just want to welcome the new listeners who we met on the ghost tours. So thanks for hanging out with us on those ghost tours. And uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Absolutely. And of course, we got to have our first meetup, which was really exciting. So keep track of our travels because we love it when our listeners can meet up with us and hang out. It's really fun to meet you face to face and hang out with you. And Denise, you know, October is going to be a big month. It's our anniversary month. It's Halloween. We've got a really cool round table where we're going to have a bunch of different uh, paranormal or horror podcasters joining us or storytellers. I'm thinking maybe we need to do a ghost tour in St. Augustine, some kind of a meetup in October. That would be awesome because I like that 
face-to-face contact with our people. Yes. So we'll have to check into that. That might be really exciting to do, especially uh, we have some family who are going to be out here during that time. So maybe if we could hook up with them, we might be able to get enough people together to do our own private tour. That would be really fun. Maybe we could even host our own. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll keep keep that going. All right. Well, let's get into our podcast for today. Sounds good. like to support the show please visit our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com During the Civil War, captured Confederate soldiers were imprisoned on an island off of Boston named George's Island. One of these soldiers was Andrew Lanier. When his wife found out that he had been taken prisoner, she found out where, and she traveled from their home in Georgia north to Hull, Massachusetts. A Confederate sympathizer lived in Hull, and he invited her into his home, which was positioned perfectly right off of George's Island. It was so close that she could watch through a spyglass what was going on over in the fort and prison. She decided to rescue her husband. She cut her hair off, dressed like a man, and carried an axe and a pistol. She rode through stormy waters across to the fort. She squeezed through the slits of the dungeon, and the captured Confederate soldiers dug a tunnel using her axe. They were nearly finished when a guard heard the digging, and all the soldiers were pulled from the tunnel, except Mrs. Lanier, who remained hidden. She sprang from the tunnel and pulled her pistol. One of the guards knocked the pistol from her hand, and when it fell to the ground, it went off, sending a fatal bullet into her husband. Mrs. Lanier was sentenced to be hung. She asked that she be hung in female clothing, but none could be found. There were only black robes, and so she was dressed in a black robe. She was hung and buried on the island. From that time, soldiers would tell tales of seeing a mysterious dark shape on the island, and sometimes they even saw a young lady in black. With all our stories of ladies in white, we find a story about a lady in black a little odd, or at least unusual. This history podcast is haunted. This day in history. On this day, August 3rd in 1900, the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company was founded by Harvey Firestone. Firestone opened the company in Akron, Ohio, since several other tire companies were already based there. The company started with 12 employees and initially supplied pneumatic tires to wagons and buggies. With the advent of the automobile, Firestone saw a new opportunity, and in 1906, Henry Ford gave Firestone a contract for the company to provide all the tires for his Model T. Firestone became the first tire company to start mass-producing tires. The company expanded into Canada in 1918, and by 1926, it had a rubber plantation in West Africa. During World War II, Firestone manufactured artillery shells, rubberized military products, and aluminum kegs. Firestone continued to make missiles for the military throughout the 50s and 60s. By the 80s, the company was faltering and going bankrupt. It was bought by Japan's Bridgestone in 1988, and the Firestone Company thrives today, having branched into many divisions and areas, including building products and car care. But it all started with one man and 12 employees. Today in history. 
listening to History Goes Bump. Danvers State Hospital sits on land that once was inhabited by Native Americans. Through the years, the area was settled by Europeans and became known as the town of Salem. Later, the town of Salem would be broken into smaller towns and the city of Danvers was established. A state hospital was built here, and that becomes home to not only the terminally or drastically ill, but also the mentally ill. As is the case with so many hospitals and sanatoriums that we have researched, this was not necessarily a good home for people. Years of abuse and deaths have led what used to be Danvers State Hospital to be considered one of the most haunted places in Massachusetts. Reports of hauntings continue today, despite the fact that it has now been converted into apartments. Come with us as we explore the history and the hauntings of Danvers State Hospital. The state of Massachusetts was home for many indigenous people. As we discussed in our Haunted Plymouth podcast, the Wampanoag and Pocaniket tribes were in Massachusetts long before the pilgrims and explorers came. There were also the Namkeag and other Pequot-speaking tribes that specifically lived in what would become the city of Danvers. The city of Salem was incorporated in 1629, which we will cover more in depth in our next podcast on the Salem Witch Trials. And between the towns of Salem and Boston, an old Namkeag Trail existed. The English colonists formed this trail into a road known as Ipswich Road in 1630. The city of Salem expanded, and this settlement was named Salem Village in 1636. Salem Village would have a strong connection to the Salem Witch Trials. One such connection is the homestead of Rebecca Nurse. You may remember that we mentioned her in a previous This Day in History as a woman who was hung with four other women on Gallows Hill. The people of Salem Village petitioned the king for a charter, but in typical king fashion, he was a jerk and refused. The villagers decided to rename their town Danvers after an early settler named Danvers Osborne in 1752, and by 1757, the residents decided to ignore the fact the crown would give them no charter, and Danvers was incorporated on June 9th. The town grew slowly, but it was not until 1847 that the railroad would arrive, bringing with it more opportunity. A town hall was built in 1855 that is still used today, and the southern portion of the city broke off and incorporated as the city of Peabody. In 1884, a railway was built in the street to accommodate horse-drawn trolleys, of which the town had 69. As technology progressed, the railway was converted to electricity. Francis Dodge owned a farm up on a hill in Danvers. The hill was known as Hathorn Hill and was a 257-foot high glacial drumlin. The hill was named for Jonathan Hathorne, who was a Salem trial judge and also an ancestor to Nathaniel Hawthorne, who changed his name to distance himself from his ancestor. Hathorne had lived in a home on the property. Massachusetts had a growing population of mentally ill people, and they needed more room to house them. They decided they needed another psychiatric facility, and Hathorne Hill seemed like the perfect place. After much persuading, which we assume came through the use of a lot of money, Francis Dodge was convinced to sell his farmland. Construction began on the hospital and consisted of two main center buildings. The main building housed the administration and had four wings that branched off from it. The wings were separated into male and female wings, and the most extremely affected patients were placed in the outermost wards. The other building was connected to the main building and housed the laundries, kitchens, a chapel, and dormitories for employees. Red brick was used in the construction of the walls, and gray slate was used for the roofs. The Denver State Hospital officially opened in 1878 and cost $1.5 million to build. The main building came to be known as the Kirkbride, and in subsequent years, other buildings were added. Solariums were added to the wards, and a gymnasium was built. As buildings were added, so were tunnels. As we have come to find, tunnels were a typical feature of these hospitals to make it easier to transport people and things. 
One of the tunnels ran from a steam and power generating plant to help the hospital be self-sufficient. Water came from the nearby Middleton Pond. The tunnels spoked out from the main building, and so they were called the wagon wheel. The hospital was originally designed to house 500 patients. The attic was opened up to make room for 100 more people. This would still not prove to be enough space, and some patients were relegated to the basement. By the 1930s, Denise, over 2,000 people called Danvers State Hospital home, and it was set up for 600. Geez, that is just insane. So one can imagine that overcrowding was extreme, and overcrowding leads to less care because there's not only not enough space, but not enough staff. Nine people would have to manage 2,000 people on one shift. And they expected this to be any kind of care for these people? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. And those nine people, that's not fair to them either. Oh, I, no, because what's nine divided by 2,000? I'm not good at math, but that's a lot of people. And these are mentally ill people, which... That need extra one-on-one. Yeah. When the hospital was first opened, mechanical restraints were used on patients. Dr. Charles Page became superintendent in the 1890s, and he decided that the restraints were inhumane, and he banned them being used. But don't let that act fool you into thinking that this hospital for the mentally ill would be better than the others. The same practices we consider barbaric today that were used at other insane asylums were used at Danvers State. These included straitjackets, hot and ice cold baths, shock therapy, and of course, lobotomies. Later, drugs were used to keep the patients in almost catatonic states. And I mean, when you've got so few people supervising, one can imagine you'd rather have them in catatonic states. By the 1960s, deinstitutionalization was spreading and Danvers State was under scrutiny for some of its practices. Portions of the hospital were shut down. Massive budget cuts started as well, and the patient population decreased drastically. By 1985, most of the hospital was closed or abandoned. In 1989, the Kirkbride Administration Building was closed and the remaining patients were moved to the medical building across the campus. In 1992, the entire campus closed for good. The property underwent renovations in 2007 to turn it into apartments, but a fire broke out and damaged much of the construction. The Kirkbride was demolished after that. The outer shell is all that is left along with the cemetery and tunnels. As of June 2014, it has been in the hands of another company and apartments are continuing to be built. And Denise, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to make a stop here because in all of the research that I was doing, I couldn't get any clear answers. For a while, I wasn't sure had it been demolished or was it just renovated into these apartments slash condos. Couldn't find answers to that. Then I find that this fire had broken out and that they had demolished a lot of stuff, but that there are parts of the Kirkbride that are still there. So it would seem that the outer shell of the Kirkbride, which would be the main tower, is still there, but the rest of it is gone. And a lot of people were upset about this because they said it could have been saved. They've had other institutions like this that were saved. And so I'm not exactly sure what all it looks like. I believe probably most of it is new building. I don't know if they're still continuing construction or if the entire property has now been developed. Uh, It traded hands after that fire. I think whoever was working on it, they had the fire and they said, forget it. How did the fire get start? Well, we don't know. Was it paranormal activity? Was it people who broke in and started it? Was it an accident from some construction equipment or wiring or something? Who knows? Because the cameras that they had there that was watching the property at 2.03 a.m. abruptly went blank. They're not sure if it was caused by the fire, something else. Somebody turned them off. We're not sure what happened there. So it could have been something strange. Could have been something normal. Who knows? So I wanted to go see so that we knew for sure 
what's there. Exactly. If you have been there in the last year and you do know for sure what it looks like, we'd love to have you guys email us. Where can they do that, Denise? At historyghostbump at gmail.com. And let us know because we didn't get a chance to. It was about oh, another 30 minutes outside of Salem and we didn't get a chance to get up there. And so that, I was really disappointed because I'm like, I want to see what that looks like so I can tell people for sure this is what's going on because we pride ourselves on accuracy. So that's the best I can give everybody is that we have new apartments and condos there with an outer shell of what used to be there still on the property. The cemeteries are still there. I believe there's two of them. They are hard to find. And a lot of the markers are no longer there, but there are a few. And I believe there's no names on them. They're numbered. So you wouldn't even really know who's buried there unless you had some records that tell you what who was under what number. And I'm not sure where they have those records. Well, and as we found out was very, very common practice in Massachusetts, it's who knows how many people were buried under each one of those numbers as well, <laughs> because they like to stack it. They said it was common practice to stack the graves. And so they would bury people on top of people on top of people. Yeah, it was either people didn't have enough money to buy their own headstone, or they just didn't have enough room. We visited a ton of cemeteries. I I don't know, what would you say, at least 10 I would say, While yes. We were there. Very cool. I've never seen the kinds of tombstones we did there. We did make some videos of those as well, and those are up on Facebook. That was true. On one of the, I believe it was the Boston Ghost Tour, he told us in one of them that we were in, there was about 2,000 headstones, but he said there's probably 10,000 people buried there. Yeah, because that's what he said, that, you know, just because the name read that doesn't mean that person was probably there, but probably along <laughs> with several other people. A few other friends hanging out as well. Let's have a party. Now, the other thing that makes Danvers State Hospital hard is that there's not a whole lot of records when it comes to hauntings. There's a lot of possibilities for what would cause hauntings. But there's not a lot of documentation. Part of the problem is because this was an abandoned area for several years, a couple of decades, people who would sneak in... We're sneaking in, which is otherwise known as trespassing. So they were either getting arrested or you don't really want to advertise that you've trespassed somewhere. So there was probably over a hundred paranormal investigation groups that tried to get into this location and were either unable or got caught. And one of them, group out of Rhode Island, did manage to get in there, but they're not sharing any evidence that they got, which tells me they probably got something, but they don't want to either get in trouble or I don't know. but they're not sharing. Yeah, they don't want to incriminate themselves. This is my speculation because obviously Diane does the history for accuracy and I just kind of say whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I also wonder just with the bad rap that that whole area has already gotten that they were keeping things hush-hush because they also very much hush-hush the witch, witch trials for a very, very long time. So they're not a very open area. You are correct, Denise, and that's the other problem. Not only is it because we have people who may not want to incriminate themselves, but the police and the officials that were a part of Danvers State Hospital kept a ton of stuff hush-hush. Not only the treatment of the people there, but anything that may have occurred. So that's the other issue that we run into. And as Denise pointed out, and we'll get into this when we talk in our next Mm -hmm. podcast about the Salem Witch Trials, people didn't know that this had happened until very recently. You may think that this is something people had talked about for a couple centuries. Oh, no. This is actually new information, really, to just the last probably 100 years. And it was only because people dug in to try to find out about it. So they tried to quiet that down. So we're not sure if that's what's going on here, which unfortunately for a podcast like ours is a bummer because you're like Danvers State Hospital. I've heard so much about this place. 
It's got to have all kinds of stuff going on. We only have a little bit to share with you about the bump part of it. Well, exactly. And, and that's the problem when people keep things secret because, you know, just with the treatment of the people there and the fact that it was a state hospital, there's got to be some hauntings. That energy always Always. Always opens up to things, whether it's, well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Yep. This entire hospital found itself gaining several nicknames in the 115 years that it was open. Some referred to it as the Palace on the Hill, while others called it the Castle on the Hill. The name that interests us the most is the Haunted Castle. And there are many stories of hauntings at Danvers State Hospital, but people aren't sharing them. <laughs> These hauntings can not only be attributed to the harsh treatment that patients endured, but we also have the close proximity to the Salem Witch Trials. And if you will recall, we did say that the hill that it was built upon used to be the property of one of those trial judges. And there was some cursing going on, which we'll get into in the next podcast. Absolutely. Several patients were buried on the property. We do have those cemeteries that are there. And because we've had development going on, we don't know how many people have been removed. Pulled over. Who knows? And whenever we have graves that get disturbed, that usually leads to some kind of activity as well. Then you have the fact that this was an abandoned property for many years. So, you know, you probably had some homeless people hanging out in there. You've got curious people who like to do urban exploring. I mean, that's what we call trespassing now, urban exploring. <laughs> I love I love all the nice words we have for things. We've had people who came in to do some investigations on hauntings. And whenever you do that kind of stuff, you do tend to open things up as well. You've got uh, trespassers who like to spray graffiti and destroy property. So I'm sure we had teenagers who were doing that as well. Now, there was a time period that there were groups of 20 that could go in and tour the property twice a month. This happened, I think, before they started developing it into apartments. So I don't know if it was like historical tours I mean, if it was ghost hunting, we don't have any records of that either. I mean, it's just amazing how much there isn't about this property. The movie Session 9, for any of those who've seen that one, it was filmed on this property. So all of these could in some way attribute to stories of hauntings, whether it's real or Denise could be imagined too. You know, when you think about stuff and you talk about stuff, you could kind of elaborate and make up things too. Oh gosh, I thought you were going to say it's real or Memorex, so I'm glad you went with imagination. (laughs) We've already talked about enough retro. (laughs) Gerilyn Levasseur's father, Gerald Richards, was a hospital administrator, and so she lived on the property in a home that was lent to them. The second-story hallway played host to disembodied footsteps often, and lights would flicker on and off. Doors would open and close on their own. One day, Gerilyn's brother and sister decided to play in the attic. Their fun came to an abrupt end when they noticed a woman scowling at them from a corner of the attic. They did not know the woman, and they could tell that she was not solid. They were terrified and huddled in the opposite corner until the mother called for them to come down from the attic. Later, Geraldine would experience the same apparition. She was sleeping in her room when she was awakened by the pulling down of her bed sheets. When she opened her eyes, she saw an angry older woman scowling at her. Although the woman was scowling, Geraldine did not feel threatened, and the apparition disappeared. And that is the only real documented evidence of paranormal activity. And Geraldine claims this is the only time that she had ever had this happen, and that was the only time it happened to her brother and sister. Very peculiar. Now, if it had all happened at once, I would think maybe it was just something passing through. Since it happened to them, it was two different experiences. It's just weird that it only, that was it. I'm not sure how long they lived in this home, but I don't know. I just find that really unusual that they, I, to get a full-bodied apparition 
And then to get something that is able, an intelligent haunting that's pulling your bed sheets down and you're seeing an apparition. I don't know. Those It's pretty rare to see apparitions. So Exactly. Now, some of the rumors that are out there are phantom footsteps being heard and captured on EVPs. There was an investigator who had visited the property many times as a teenager so they could hang out and drink alcohol. And he claimed that there was a dark energy to the building. And he imagined that that energy came from the emotions of the former residents and somehow it was trapped in the brick walls there. So one of the things that we heard from anybody who had ever been around the property and that they're perhaps sensitive to some of this stuff, every single person says there's a dark energy. It feels foreboding. There's melancholy when you go in there. I would love to talk to some of the residents who live there. Do they have those same feelings about living there? Have they had any experiences? But definitely everybody that has been on the property has said that. A couple of Wiccans visited the property in the past, and they claim to feel an intense foreboding. Psychics claim to feel pain and confusion from unseen entities. There are those that claim that the energy could cause something referred to as a personal haunt. And Denise, this is something that I don't think we've ever mentioned on the podcast is this thing called a personal haunt. Basically, what this is, is all of us have our own fears, emotions and doubts, things that are maybe what we would consider bad emotions or bad feelings. We all have those. Well, when you come upon something that is dark whether it's a spirit, demonic. I think maybe we've mentioned on other shows how we feel like these things that are darker, Denise, it's like they feed off of fear. Oh, absolutely. So they would want to feed off of that on you. So if you enter these places, sometimes not only are they wanting to feed off of that, so they're wanting to create that in you, which is why I think sometimes you get these apparitions that mean to scare you or try to harm you in some way when you have the scratching or the grabbing. They're trying to get you into a fear state so they can feed off of that, maybe even materialize based on that. We don't understand psychology. Human beings are very complicated creatures. And so when you walk into something that already may have dark energy, and then you have it in your mind that there's dark energy, you might possibly manifest something just of your own creation. Sometimes, Denise, we've talked about teenagers, especially teenage girls, sometimes have this way of causing poltergeist type of things to happen, you know, things get moved, thrown around, and it's because of the energy they're throwing off. It's not something supernatural. It could be something paranormal, because remember, paranormal is not necessarily ghosts. It's just something Mm -hmm. outside of science that we don't understand or can't see or can't replicate. Right. Maybe, possibly, when people are going into these places, they're having what's called a personal haunt, and it's their own fears and emotions that are manifesting something in front of them. Or it could be an entity that is using those emotions to manifest something. Absolutely. Or sometimes just they're, they're extra like hyper about what they might be sensing or feeling as well, which we had on that one trip. There was the girl who had the, on the one ghost tour we did, the girl who had the haunting. I kept taking pictures around her because it sounded like she had a personal haunt just to see if I could pick something up. But then also that group of teenage girls, it was like every picture they took, they thought they had something. Yeah, that's one reason why I'm not always crazy about having teenagers on ghost tours because, yeah, they really think they've got something in every picture. You know, we do have one peculiar picture that we got that eventually we want to get up on the the website for people to look at and just see. I mean, we've tried to debunk it in different ways. We asked every single uh, ghost tour operator what they thought of it. Uh, We got one lady who just looked at the whole phone and said, well, it's just a bunch of bugs flying around, which I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't answer that to uh, my satisfaction. Uh, There's some weird coloring 
in it, which could look like red coats. So it's, and it was in a cemetery. So it's a very peculiar picture. We want to put it up so people can give their comments on it. We're not sold that there's something weird. It could just be an anomaly. Mm -hmm. It was the only anomaly picture that we took. But sometimes you do get in with these people who they want so badly for something to happen that everything's happening. Or uh, the last tour that we did in Salem, there was an area where you were supposed to smell an apple cider smell because this was used to be an old apple orchard and it was a woman who had been part of the Salem stuff. And we had a young couple that were talking about a lot of haunting things that had happened to them. And of course, every time they said, do you feel something? They felt something. She could smell it, but nobody else could. And you know, we had, it was a huge group. There was probably 30 of us and nobody else is smelling it, but the both of them. And for people who don't know me personally, I have a heightened sense of smell for some reason. It actually is a medical condition. So if something is stinky, like the city of Boston, oh my God, that place reeks. (laughs) Great city, but a little bit on the stinky side. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, that place smells bad. But uh, I didn't smell anything. And so Denise and I are like, if I'm not smelling it, it's probably not there because I can detect you know, people might not smell anything. And I'm like, what's that? Exactly. Well, and then the other thing I would have been more convinced if he would have said, keep your nose open and mm-hmm. let me know if you smell anything, any sense, good, bad or indifferent, just let me know. Because then if they'd come up with it, they were smelling apple cider instead of being led into the fact that they were looking for the smell of apples. Cause there was one lady who had some um pretty, it was like a pretty strong perfume on too. Cause there was a couple mm-hmm. times she walked by me that I was like, wait, I am Oh wait, It's her again that she had, you know, and so, but I would have been more convinced if he would have said, see what you smell. And then if they would have come up with apples rather than that being put in their head already. Exactly. The power of suggestion, figment of your imagination. For example, we were in an old jail at the very end of the Barnstable ghost tour. And she turned out all the lights. And I have a little, actually, he was a teenage kid who was standing next to me. What would you say? He was about 12? Yeah, maybe 12, 11 or 12. So maybe not quite to teens. And but the, yeah. the poor thing was terrified. And I could hear him quivering, talking to his mom. And, you know, I'm scared. Oh, my gosh. Da, 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 da. I don't like this. And then we had some teenage girls on that one as well that were kind of doing the giggling thing and the tour director guide was telling them, you know, girls, please calm down because she wanted to have total silence because she said, if there's anybody here with us, make a noise. And she said on a previous tour, there had been this sound like a large bang and she actually dropped something to let us know what it sounded like. So and she told us prior that she was going to do that. Yeah, she so said, we, this we is knew me. That was it. So as I'm standing there, I thought I could hear as if somebody was walking on the floor above us. It was just a couple of steps, but it wasn't enough to convince me that I actually heard something and I didn't say a word about it. I told Denise later, I said, I thought I heard, it wasn't very loud. I thought I heard something, but I said, you know, it's that power of suggestion and it was, you know, quiet in there. It just, it was ripe for somebody to think something had happened. So I said, you know, I'm not going to believe that one. That's why it was so exciting for us to have the experience that we had in Plymouth because it was experienced by all of us in the group. The tour guide was just as stunned by it as we were and there was no doubt that it had happened. It wasn't like, did I hear that? Did I see that? It did happen. We don't know why. And we don't know it could have been an electrical thing. But it was something at least that was a little out of the ordinary. Well, and somebody had suggested that maybe it was a trick that they do sometimes on flashlight things for the shows. But the thing with this particular tour group, they definitely tempted the spirits. 
constantly they sent out bait. <laughs> they had people sit in Can the captain's chair. That? that that time they were not. Exactly. So who knows? But that's all that we have there at Danvers State Hospital. With a history for not only the buildings of Danvers State Hospital, but also a history for the land, it is not surprising that at least superstition has a stronghold on the property. Do the souls of former patients roam the area? Is the ground cursed? Is the area of the former Danvers State Hospital haunted? That is for you to decide. And as we've mentioned, our next podcast is going to feature only the second time we've ever done a haunted event on the show. It's going to be the Salem Witch Trials. And we're going to try to bring to you as much of the truth as we can or as much as we know, because obviously this was hundreds of years ago. And we're not exactly sure what caused the stirrings that happened there. One thing we do know for sure is that a lot of innocent people were jailed and put to death. And so we're going to try to get to the bottom of why that happened and talk about hauntings and cursings in relation to that. Absolutely. And and it'll be a great show for everybody because I know just being in that area, a lot of the things that I thought I knew, I didn't know. So it's going to be a great podcast. Please join us then. Exactly. We're glad that you guys joined us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.